Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. On today's podcast, we are pleased to be joined by Dr. Karma R. Chavez, who is the department chair and a professor at the University of Texas at Austin in the Department of Mexican-American and Latina Latino Studies. Dr. Chavez, welcome to Race and Democracy. Thanks so much for having me. It's good to be here. Well, you do scholarship at the intersection of queer um, people of color theory and women of color feminism. And this is such an extraordinary moment that we're in when we're seeing uh, these national and global movements for racial justice in the aftermath of George Floyd's uh, public execution by the Minneapolis Police Department. Um, I would love to have a discussion with you about allyship, especially within the context of Black and Latinx identities. I know I've seen on social media, people have Latinx for Black Lives Matter, but then others criticizing and say, but there's Afro-Latinos. Um, and then when you get into the politics of queer and LGBTQ within those identities, it can be quite complex. And then when you add layers of feminism and so many black queer women um, have been leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement when we think about Opal Tometi and Alicia Garza and Patrice Khan Colors, but so many more. Um, so I wanna get into that discussion. How do you, what do you think about what's transpiring really globally um, at this moment? Well, it's such an immense question because uh, it's hard to keep track of actually everything that is going on, except to say that it actually feels like things might be changing. Uh, it actually feels like a lot of white folks and non-black people of color are actually following black leadership, actually uh, really trying to understand in a deep and meaningful way what anti-blackness is and how that differs from the kinds of racial oppression that other minoritized groups face and also how it forms the basis for uh, the oppression that Latinos and, and, and others might face. And so I think people are getting a, a deep racial consciousness that maybe hasn't been possible before. And I also think people are really, really realizing in this moment that the police are not our friends that, in fact, if police were designed, of course, as slave patrols originally, uh, they've continued that legacy and that we can no longer participate in that. We can, even if the police don't bother us personally, uh, we can no longer participate in that. Uh, and it's time to follow radical black leadership in that regard as well. Uh, of course, it's complicated. Uh, yeah, and I want to... I wanna... I want to interject here when you sure. say it's time to follow radical black leadership, because there's been a lot of discussion of allyship, but across the white black color line. And so, uh, you know, even obviously on campus, we have um, African and African diaspora studies, but we also have Mexican American and Latino Latino studies, which are actually occupying the same building. Um, what about allyship within? What are the potentials for allyship and what are the, the challenges 
whether it's on campus, off campus. Obviously, we live in Austin, Texas, which has a really robust uh, Mexican and Spanish-speaking immigrant community. Uh, what are some of the potentials and the, the challenges, conflicts, contradictions of that allyship between Black and Latinx um, people and groups? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. We are if you if you're if you're not a a, a Black person of color, uh, you know, I think it's um, Afro pessimism that would refer to us as sort of junior partners to white supremacy, right? And so. Uh, we're still, of course, impacted by the negative impacts of that, but we are uh, absolutely beneficiaries of that as well. And this, in I'll say, in the Latinx community, uh, and I should say in the mestizo or the white Latinx community, and be very specific about the racial politics there, this is very challenging um, because uh, we have sort of analogized our oppression with the black community and simultaneously erased the black members of our community. And, you know, in the United States, something like 25% of Latinx folks identify as Afro Latinx. And so it's not like uh, Latinx. So it's not like this is a, a small sector of the population, but it, it's very hard when you're used to being an oppressed person uh, to wrap your head around the fact that you're also implicated in other people's oppression. And so this is a huge challenge. It's something that my department, uh, actually the meeting right after this call is to have a conversation with colleagues about how we can begin to center Afro-Latinidad and how we can challenge the white and mestizo members of our community uh, on their racism, on their anti-blackness. Yeah, and I'd love to talk about that because I think one of the reasons why at times um, Black and Latinx people have had conflicts, and there's obviously good scholarship on this, is, uh, you know, racism within the the Latinx communities. At times, Black American anti-immigration sentiment, at times that's overblown, but at times it exists in terms of competition over jobs, employment in places like Los Angeles, places like North Carolina. But when you think about historically, uh, Black movements have reached out to Latinx movements where we're thinking about farm workers and Cesar Chavez or the Young Lords and Brown Berets and the Black Panthers. Um, but in a lot of ways, uh, since like you said, there's such a wide spectrum of Latinx identity in the United States, there are certainly some groups who are more Anglo-identifying and in that sense, um, at times get racial privilege, especially those who can pass for white or come very close um, so what can we do to to end that and mitigate that? Because certainly we even feel it on campus. You know, I mean, I think there are Latinos on campus scholars who, you know, aren't necessarily interested in either um, African-American and Black African diasporic solidarity and at times aren't necessarily really interested in Mexican-American studies either. They, <laughs> they, they, you know, they're, they're really in between. And it's, it's actually fascinating to see because many times they won't necessarily accept a racialized identity except in moments that they might use that to leverage that in their favor. But they're not necessarily in solidarity broadly with either of those communities. Yeah, absolutely. I was just having this exact conversation with folks in an earlier organizing meeting today to figure out, um, you know, how, how 
those of us who feel differently than that within the Latinx community, uh, what what we need to be doing to to address this because it's it, it's very challenging. And what I'll say is not very satisfying, but it's that you know non-black Latinx folks need political education. We need to understand the sort of complexity of the racial formation of the United States of America, and we need to understand also ourselves within a context of uh, Latin American racial formations and how that informs the anti-blackness that uh, our communities carry with us to the United States. Even those of us who have been here for several generations, like my family, those dynamics remain. And so... Uh, we need political education and Latinx, non-black Latinx folks need to do it because it's not the job of, you know, Afro-Latinos or African-Americans to do this work for us. Now, where do you see this going? Because I already look and we're seeing really unprecedented um, uh, corporate mea culpas, Black Lives Matter, the NFL, NASCAR has taken down the Confederate flag. Um it's definitely this global movement and we're seeing this in the United States and Austin. It's not just about the criminal justice. It's about this movement for black dignity and citizenship, but other allies of color or would be allies of color. I think sometimes right now feel both excited, especially those who are on the street supporting, but then those of us who are part of the petty bourgeoisie who might be academics, who might be people who have a political identity, but it might be a political identity that is really reserved for access to these different democratic institutions in our society, like higher education mm-hmm. or the political sphere. They're not necessarily out in the streets, even if at one point they had been. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see there some concern among Latinx allies and friends who are saying, well, what about us? Um, And then I see pushback from Black friends, even diasporically, who say, well, no, this is our time. And if we achieve freedom, it's going to reverberate back to all these different intersectional groups. And they'll point to Black Lives Matter and their policy agenda actually having a very robust immigration policy agenda and mm-hmm. reparations for immigration that includes not only just Spanish speakers and Latinx, but immigrants from West Africa, immigrants from the Middle East, immigrants from the Caribbean, um, mm-hmm. Haiti, for example, where, where my people are from. So what do you what do you say in these these spaces that we operate in, like at the University of Texas, Austin, when you're already feeling concerns. And I've heard this from Native American folks too, Asian folks, some who want allyship and they want to step into the arena with that Black freedom struggle, but others who are feeling concerned and saying, what about our struggles? Yeah, this is such a common thing. And I think it emerges in part because of the sort of divide and conquer, kind of give people of color writ large the crumbs and so we're constantly fighting over this, you know, tiny little bit of recognition that we get. And if somebody else is getting it, we have a zero sum game mentality. Uh, and I'll tell you, I see this with my own family. I was, I actually haven't talked to them in a couple of weeks because of this exact thing. So my partner is black and my family is, uh, my mom is white and my dad is uh, Mexican American. So we're all mixed race kids. And we grew up in rural Nebraska. So, you know, we were about the darkest thing out there, right? There just weren't a lot of people of color. 
And so because we occupied that position, you know, both of my brothers had run-ins with the cops. Both of my brothers had been brutalized by the cops. Now that happened in a very particular context. But after everything happened with George Floyd, you know, my uh, siblings were texting back and forth on the family chain and they were saying things like, oh, you know, be careful out there. There's riots and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, guys, you know, let's think about the, the way we're talking about this. And finally, my partner, who's the only black person in this conversation, you know, she jumps in and says something really astute about, you know, please think about the way you're talking about this and who it actually impacts and who this is about. And I was so, I don't even know how to describe my disappointment because immediately one of my brothers who was beat up by the cops, who lost movement in his arm for six months, right? He went through a really bad time, but he just immediately went into this sort of analogizing between his experience and like George Floyd. And I was like, (laughs) you're alive, man, (laughs) you know? And it, I was, it was just so symbolic of this inability to see blackness without analogy. And so this is a question I'm trying to figure out. I don't have a good answer, but it's stuff that has to constantly be worked on and it's my job to do it. What can we do on campus? Because some of what we see on campus, whether we're thinking about women's studies, Latinx studies, African and African diaspora studies, you know, I'm in the history department, LBJ, Center for the Study of Race and Democracy. We have so many different people who are interested in racial justice, but at times, and it's not just our campus at UT, this is nationally, you know, Mm -hmm. people of color nationally who are deeply interested in intersectional justice, I might add, interested in queer, you know, LBGTQ, connecting this with people of color, indigenous people, black people, uh, people who have been marginalized because of their non-able-bodiedness or mental illness or their cash-poor, HIV-positive, food-distressed, so many different things. And, and they're serious about it. But it seems like they don't necessarily get together. And that solidarity piece is very hard because of academic differences, ideological differences, sometimes personality differences. Yeah. And I think in the streets right now, we're seeing this radical revolutionary democracy movement around Black Lives Matter, around all these deaths of Black women and men, historically, but a tipping point in the context of COVID-19, mass unemployment, neoliberalism, racial violence and terror, you know, against so many different people, including Latinx folks and what they've done with detention camps and really despicable federal and local policy that's anti-human. But what can we do to really push that solidarity piece? Just even, you know, in ways that this conversation, I feel, can really be scaled up to different universities across the country because, you know, we are everywhere. You think about Spanish speakers and Black folks. We are everywhere. And uh, we've contributed so much to uh, the humanities and social sciences, especially right now, the hot study of sort of intersectionality, border studies, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Mexican American studies, Latina, Latino studies, Black studies, th- these different feminisms and geographies of feminism and anti-colonialism. You know, mm-hmm. we we invented all that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what can we do to stand in solidarity with each other, both on the campus and then take that 
than off the campus? Well, this is a important and complex question. I think, you know, one of the things that I have been working on at the University of Texas is uh, building this sort of loose initiative that we're calling the GRIDS initiative, which is Gender, Race, Indigeneity, Disability, and Sexuality Studies Initiative. And presently, it's a loose partnership between Black Studies, Latinx Studies, Indigenous Studies, Asian American Studies, LGBTQ Studies, and Gender Women's Studies. And it emerged out of the work of the College of Liberal Arts Diversity Committee. And we, uh, the the group of us that uh, is, you know, kind of in building this thing, you know, our view is that all of our units should be able to maintain our autonomy, and yet we're stronger together. And this is a way to fortify ourselves against divide and conquer politics. Now, it's always a fragile coalition, right? Uh, it's always uh, got the potential to to fall apart by any number of little things. And so for me, it's about constantly kind of managing conversations between people, figuring out where there might be uh, weaknesses and then trying to, you know, foster those relationships to move in better directions and then build projects together. So, you know, we ran this giant cluster hire where so far we've hired five new colleagues of color who will join the College of Little Arts, hopefully seven within the next couple of weeks. Uh, that's huge. And that was through this GRIDS initiative. We've hired several postdocs over the last several years. And so I think in the institution, it's about building infrastructures like this that are deeply embedded in a kind of politics and that are full of open communication. And I think in general, that's what has to work outside as well. But it's really hard work. I mean, I think it was Bernice Johnson Reagan who said, uh, coalitions aren't like home. Uh, you know, it's not like, you know, having a bottle. They, they, uh, they feel like they can kill you, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's true because coalitions are not in group. They're a bunch of groups together. So it's hard, hard work. And it really is largely about shared politics and about good communication. Do you think when you think about coalitions that right now what we need to do in the aftermath of uh, these racial justice uprisings for Black Lives Matter is the kind of multiracial, multicultural coalitions that Dr. King tried to build in 1967-68 with the Poor People's Campaign, which had indigenous and Mexican and black and white uh, and Native American and just the whole, the whole rainbow spectrum in the United States demanding uh, guaranteed citizenship rights, decent housing, universal basic income. What do you think the next steps um, should be? Well, it's all fine and well to build coalitions, but if the if the coalitions aren't actually premised in a deep analysis of, of capitalism and white supremacy at the same time, uh, they're ultimately only going to be able to address symptoms. And you know, this country has an allergy to the word socialism, for example, uh, and people feel like there can be a kinder and gentler capitalism. And so that is one of the. I mean, in all addition to all the other things, that's one of the big challenges here is um, we have to move outside of just the politics of representation uh, and start thinking about politics of uh, redistribution. But fundamentally, um, if those coalitions aren't also uh, deeply aware of the question of settler colonialism and deeply aware of the foundational question of anti-Blackness, they're also not going anywhere. So 
I mean, I don't have a good answer, but I just think it's like all of these things have to be held together at once. And so the kind of rainbow coalition idea is nice, but it's, um, it, it's a lot more complicated than that. Do you find hope in what's happening with the calls to defund the police in the context of sort of redistributive um, politics, whether we're going to call it redistributive social dem- dem- democracy or just a redistribution of resources or wealth, this idea of defund the police by really reallocating resources, reimagining what we think about public safety uh, and the way in which those conversations are forcing hard conversations at really virtually every sector of society, including the university. Mm -hmm. I think this is fantastic. It reminds me of 2018, I guess it was, when there were all the demands to abolish ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And I couldn't believe, I mean, I'm a prison abolitionist, and I couldn't believe that abolition language had actually entered into the mainstream and now when you looked more closely at how people were talking about abolish ice they many of the mainstream organizations were terrified of the idea but you know it was a way to get their message out and then they could talk about you know what they were going to talk about under that banner and i think that actually has something to do with this moment which is when we talk about defund police the next logical step is to dismantle and then abolish and put something else in its place And I think this is deeply exciting. I think this is precisely the direction we need to go because it actually strikes at the root of the problem. It's actually a radical move. And, um, you know, I've like been with so many people dreaming about this moment and I think we might actually be here and we'll see if, uh, I'm not too hopeful about that in Austin right now, to be honest, but, uh, things are looking pretty promising, at least in Minneapolis. Okay, my final question, uh, Karma, is uh, really that question about hope. Uh, What are your hopes um, for this moment, both in the short term uh, and the long term? I guess I might say that I inhabit this moment uh, subjunctively, (laughs) uh, with a subjunctive mood, so a bit uncertain and uh, cautious about where we're going. I think people following black leadership is incredible. It's exciting to me. And because of, you know, the, the, the nature of the kind of intersectional analysis of so many black leaders, this is a truly uh, expansive and inclusive movement. So uh, I'm excited about that. I'm excited that the conversation about anti-blackness is actually circulating widely not just racism. Um, so those those things give me hope. All right. I, I love ending podcasts on <laughs> hopeful <laughs> hopeful notes and cautious optimism. Um, we'll leave it there. We've been talking to Dr. Karma Chavez, who's the chair and a professor in the Department of Mexican-American Studies, Mexican-American and Latina Latino studies at the University of Texas at Austin. And we've been talking really about intersectionality, coalition building between groups of uh, racially oppressed people of color, but also following black leadership and really having this open national conversation on anti-blackness and not just racism and trying to eradicate and defeat white supremacy in 2020 in the context of the George Floyd protest. Uh, Dr. Chavez, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. 
Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.